we've woken up from a season-long hibernation. <laughs> the giants of movie season are back! Yeah! I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. <laughs> You're listening to Deep Cut. With conviction. <laughs> You're listening to Deep Cut. Again. Not my tempo. <laughs> back into old habits not recognizing when we're starting <laughs> on deep cut we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us usually we also usually discuss the director's life and career to bring context that helps us view that movies as they may want us to but we're not doing that today at all <laughs> sorry yes this is the farthest from a usual deep cut episode a because we are not following our regular format and b because as you can tell, we are very rusty, um, but happy to be back on mic and happy to be back with both of you. Likewise, uh, we're back on the podcast to talk about our summer movie watching. Let's just dive into it. Sure. Ben, how is your summer movie watching? I had a very lopsided summer in terms of movie watching. I had a stack to June and then I really fell off after that. <laughs> but I was like kind of focusing on some directors that were interesting to me that were doing a bit more, I don't know what's the word, hopefully more invigorating, high energy, I guess, directors are like more intense directors. So the three are Verhoeven, Michael Mann, and um, Kiyoshi Kurosawa, what the directors was looking at. And then actually after summer, I was looking to Peter Weir, which you'll, I saw I did a little bit of during the summer, but just one movie. Yeah, so I I'm kind of want to talk about some of these things. I know me and Eli watch Pulse, yeah. which mm. I think we're going to go a little bit into. Man has been a good revisiting slash like exploring. I don't know, like I just want to like throw out some random things. Like in terms of man, the most interesting thing I saw was Collateral, which I thought was just a great Tom Cruise vehicle because it's so mm. not Tom Cruise. I also saw, let's see, um, I think it's, my God, I might be wrong, but I think I'm correct. Jacques Rivette's La Belle Noisue, or The Beautiful Troublemaker, which is a four-hour-long movie about fucking painting. <laughs> Extremely interesting. <laughs> Not sure if it's an amazing movie, but definitely somehow very engaging, even though it's extremely slow and about a guy painting a portrait. I didn't realize you tackled Rivette this, or tackled a Rivette this summer. He's a guy I'm interested in, but like, I don't know how I feel about him, and his movies are very, very long. It feels like one of those like cinephile mountains that you want to climb. Mm-hmm. They might be long, but they sound like they're riveting. Hey. <laughs> That's pretty good. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, uh, and maybe my biggest surprise in terms of TV watching was me really liking... Oliver Asayas's Irma Vep TV series, which I still think about and like I think is a really good TV show and I'm surprised I even think that way because I'm not a fan of Asayas at all. Same. But I think he does something quite incredible with the medium of TV mm. and like is very heartfelt about his filmmaking and like storytelling. Mm. And yeah, I like that. Last thing I want to know is with Stillman's last days of disco was really fun. That's all. <laughs> Great. So quippy. I love it. We love Whit Stillman in this house. And that soundtrack in that movie yes. is to it's, die for. It's also part of my best friend cinema canon. So a great list. <laughs> Even though like, are they best friends? Not really. <laughs> but <kind of>. <laughs> <laughs> best friends who also hate each other. <laughs> Wilson, how was your summer? 
it was similarly sort of lopsided as Ben's was, but I'm, if you guys don't know, I was traveling a lot in the summer. So June, I was in Europe and only caught a couple movies at the start of the month on a plane. But then July, as soon as I landed in New York City, I spent that month glued to the theatrical <laughs> screens, as many theaters I could go to in that month and as many repertory screenings as I could go to in that month, I went. And I felt very gratified by all the movies that I, I watched and all the people I got to watch these movies with. And in August, I was also able to start hitting some movies that have been on my watch list for a while and also like going down some rabbit holes. But I would like to shout out a couple of films that I saw this summer. First of all, oh, I'm going to butcher this name. But Eli and I had the great opportunity of seeing the North American premiere of Nawapo Thamrongratanarit's new film, Fast and Feel Love. So uh, Thamrongratanarit was a small director obsession I had last year after seeing Happy Old Year. And I went in and like saw a couple of his old shorts like Die Tomorrow and 36. When Eli and I were talking about films to watch this summer, I was like, oh my god, this his movie is premiering at New York Asian Film Festival. Let's go and watch it. And out of the, the three movies we caught together this summer, I feel like this was the nicest surprise. Yeah. Um, I had a lot of fun watching it. I laughed a lot. It is a film about overcoming a little, like, bump in your life when you hit your 30s mm. and readjusting and, and, like, resettling into middle-ageness. At least that... <laughs> Jesus, I just hit that bump. <laughs> I am not middle-aged. <laughs> like, through competitive cup stacking. <laughs> this movie also has some of the best visual gags that I've seen in a long time. It's funnily referential to other movies and there were points when Wilson and I were the only ones in the theater who got those references and were cackling mm-hmm. our heads off sounding like <laughs> maniacs very what's the fun. best reference like what's what's the kind of reference so his girlfriend is teaching him how to pot a plant and okay. he says sand I hate sand it's coarse and gets everywhere and Wilson and I instantly guffawed and everyone else was like it did they didn't register it yeah. So at least the director knew that someone in this audience understood. Yes. And um, he's like hiring or he, he was like hiring one of the ladies to work for him. And she's like, oh, yeah, I can teach you English. And I have a, a, a friend who's an art oh tutor God. as well. And also oh. someone else who's a driver. <laughs> it became a little <laughs> parasite gag in that brief moment that more people got. And it was pretty funny. So funny. <laughs> I also dove a little deeper into my um, Romare obsession, thanks to Ben, and I saw The Adventures of Rosette, which is a series of shorts that Rosette actually co-directed with Romare, and this is pretty hard to find, so if you're looking for a link, Go into the Discord and find me and and DM me. Um, and he won't help you find a link to view this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will. I, I will not 
help you find a link <laughs> to this movie. Just to make that clear. But it's joyous as every Romare film with a female protagonist I've seen is. And I think Rosette has such a incredible charm to her. And I think what Romare does best is to build tension in situations where there isn't that much tension so then mm. when like the tension is resolved it, it, it everyone like just feels good <laughs> so and i think that pairing with rosette's on-screen personality works wonders definitely check that out and the last film that I want to talk about is a short film from Naomi Kawase. And Kawase has been a filmmaker that I've been circling around for the past couple of years. I've seen Sweet Bean, which I decently enjoyed. And I've seen Suzaku, which is supposed to be a deep cut, but I don't think I enjoyed it as much. But this, Katsutamori, is the first Naomi Kawase film that I can say that I like really loved. So this is a 40-minute sort of video diary that she made with her grandma. And this was when she's still very young. Like, she's 24 when she's shooting these clips. Um, and she's just talking to her grandma about life, about her youth, and her grandma taking care of her when she was young. And I think it's a beautiful love letter that she has made for her grandma, but she has also been able to share with the world. And it's so rare where you find films or documentaries that that make you feel so close to the person making them mm. this is one of those shining gems and a deep cut of my of my summer movie watching that i want to mm. i want to bring to the table is this also hard to find Yes, so <laughs> don't to hop find. on the discord and don't talk to me to find a link <laughs> Message Wilson, and he will report you to the proper authorities. <laughs> I think Kawase had a new film this year as well, right? I think she, she's been making films quite steadily. Yes. I don't think I've seen a single Kawase film. And has been a, a canned darling, even though a lot of, like, just, yeah, both of the narrative films that I've seen from her have have been maybe quite, like, quite slow for me and has, hasn't been able to click for me. But I hope as is with so many other directors that I come into contact with, the more films that I watch, the more that I understand their filmmaking process and their ethos, the more I enjoy their movies. So, yeah, hopefully that will be the case and maybe we will cover her on the pod in the future. So, Eli, Let's how chat. was your summer movie watching? I was glad to accompany you to a few of these movies. Likewise, that was the indisputable highlight of my summer movie going was getting to see those three movies with you, Wilson. Those three movies were David Lynch's Lost Highway, Phil Tippett's Mad God, and the aforementioned Fast and Feel Love. Uh, What else can I say? It was just a total delight to be able to reunite with one of my closest friends and watch movies together. So such a joy. And quite like an eclectic like selection of films if you, if you when you lay it out like that. That yeah. is an odd triple feature to be sure. <laughs> My summer also included doing a little bit of deep cut research on David Cronenberg, mm. a director who I'll say will likely cover. So I watched Videodrome, Crimes of the Future, and The Fly from him. And I realized that I've also seen a number of others. I think I've seen six or seven at this point, maybe eight. Mm. I guess I'll save my takes for when we cover him. But Yeah, you're racking up those numbers, though. I know. 
there's another director who we'll mention later on who I similarly have racked up numbers and don't exactly know how I feel overall. With Cronenberg, he has a couple of movies that I really adore. And then there are some that I don't. And I'll leave the rest of the details for when we return to David Cronenberg. Crony B. (laughs) Crony boy. My summer also included some wonderful stop motion features. Of course, there's this year's Marcel the Shell with shoes on, which is just delightful and made me cry like six times. (laughs) And then there's on Mubi, there was a great little short from a Hungarian director in the 70s called Scenes with Beans. What is that? (laughs) And it's about this planet where beans are like the people and they just get into little situations with each other. And it's all stop motion. And I watched it and I was like, yeah, this is just (laughs) entirely made for me. So thank you. (laughs) Sorry, it's directed by this guy called Otto (laughs) Focke. And sorry, problem. Sorry to Otto Bucky. Sorry to this man. And the last thing I'll mention from my summer viewing was Better Call Saul, mm. a great show with a great ending, yeah. and one of the best characters, both in writing and performance in TV history, in Kim Wexler, played by Rhea Seahorn. I can't mm. wait for whatever she's gonna do with Vince. Gilligan. Yeah, she just like, has uh, announced this deal with Apple TV where Vince Gilligan is creating a show that she's going to be starring in. Very ridiculous. here for that. Soul. It could be terrible if I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> she's one of our great living actresses, I'm convinced. Yeah, and it's like crazy because she um, was kind of discovered somewhat late. I mean, I know she had a lot of early roles, but she, no, she did not. She had a few like small roles here and there, but she was only discovered as like a quote-unquote good actress like quite late with Better Call Saul that's true yeah yeah I hope it opens up new potential channels for her in her career after this point I'm sure it will so as we watched things this summer and we were planning this episode we decided to record a little hot take reaction after each movie that we watched or in Ben's case he did a weekly roundup because this man watched so many movies. <laughs> no, I got lazy and I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. I was like, oh, I need to do this now. <laughs> so what we're going to do now is we're going to look at each other's movie logs from the summer. And we're going to pick some that we want to ask each other about. So we'll listen to the recording of that reaction. And then we'll talk about it as a group briefly. And if you want to hear all of our reactions in one place you can go to our episode feed and check out Ben's Summer Movie Audio Diary, Wilson's Summer Movie Audio Diary, and my Summer Movie Audio Diary. And the one who gets the most listens gets a present on the next episode that we record. <laughs> who should we start with? It's like that Spider-Man <laughs> meme where we're all pointing guns at each yeah. other. <laughs> but it's pointing mics at each other. <laughs> okay, I mean, let's look at the dates. Let's just go date by answer. date. The answer is it's me. Mine's the first one. <laughs> Ben, I want to talk about this TV show that you finished and you recommended me to watch and I also really loved. So this is not Irma Vetments. We are lady parts. (laughs) (laughs) I guess we should listen to the clip first. So let's, yeah, run the clip. (laughs) Yeah. 9th of June. But what I really want to talk about today is actually this 2021 British TV show called We Are Lady Parts, which I think aired on the BBC as well as is on Peacock right now. And this is... Just fantastic. And I think 
in hindsight, probably my favorite show from 2021 because of its cultural specificity. You have these Muslim girls in a punk band singing these incredibly written punk songs, which are both punk anthems as well as quite funny in a way that feels universal, even though it is rooted in um, their Muslim identity. And I don't know how it does this magic. Like I am not a Muslim girl in a punk band and I felt like I identified so much with the feelings that they have. And like, I felt so much empathy for these characters, even though it is just kind of trying to do a lot of broad comedy in some certain senses. And it is also mining comedy from that cultural specificity and creating drama that is not something that you would see in something else because of that cultural specificity. Within its six very short episodes, I think it creates a great arc and leaves room for more things to happen, takes surprising kind of conclusions to its different plot threads, which leave things open, but also feel like not the most obvious answer to this plot thread. And I think by doing those things in its kind of different subplots, like it allows itself to feel not so rote or rudimentary in terms of the kind of long line you're reading, you know, Muslim girl, punk band, like there is something you can do here, which would be so kind of by the numbers, you know, just a similar story, but with Muslim identity kind of just thrown in there. And I think this really nails it. And the cast is amazing. Uh, shout out to the one who's playing the main character's mom, who steals every scene she's in, terrifically performed and written. The main cast is also fantastic. They all kind of embody very different Muslim women, and they're so good at kind of being this family and then all having kind of a very unique perspective. So that's all very well performed and written as well. Yeah, and it's really interesting because I also just watched the premiere for the new Miss Marvel show on Disney+, Plus, which was okay, and also, you know, trying to do this Pakistani-American identity and trying to put that as part of a story. And that feels like there is this commodification of that ethnic identity to real in viewers, but not necessarily trying to think about what the identity can be used to tell a very culturally specific and interesting story to that identity. Whereas We Are Lady Parts is trying to tell this broad comedy, but has drama that is rooted in that cultural specificity. Just being able to kind of compare these two at just kind of coincidentally really kind of shows you how you can treat that kind of thing with different touches. Yeah, so really liked We Are Lady Parts. Nice. Well, I forgot. I forgot. I made the comparison about Miss Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> Dunking on Disney on the way out. Love it. King behavior. But I chose this because I think this is a show that will like fly, has flown under everyone's radar, yes. and will continue to do so for the rest of the year. And I think it was one of the highlights of my TV watching this year so far. And mm. we might even forget to talk about it by the time we do our year-end conversation. I mean, it's the thing is, it's not a 2022 series. It's from 2021. Oh. Yeah, so like it would miss out that list. Uh, I don't know if there's a season two. I can't remember. But yeah, like my like it has these great flight of fancy sequences that I love, and like yes. kind of like embraces a, a, a kind of like a, a zany mind world of the main characters. I forgot her, her character's name, but yeah, Amina. Uh, yeah, Amina, <laughs> and she's also such a great character. Yes, I love all the characters, and they're all so different, which is just like good writing. Like make every character so distinct with a very distinct voice. Mm. Yeah, it's it's honestly a fantastic show. <laughs> I will recommend it to anyone. That was. It would have been my favorite show, 2021. Me too. Thank you so much, Ben, for this recommendation. Everyone yeah. go watch it. Is that, yeah, okay. That's it. <laughs> okay. In the vein of Wilson having watched something that Ben recommended. My ass. What about Wilson from 
Yeah. What about your pass? <laughs> Wilson, you watched Mass. <laughs> mass. Sorry, no jokes, no jokes. We can't laugh. It's hard for to joke about. We can't yeah. laugh. And yet, we did it. Um, the second movie that I caught on this flight was Mass. And Mass is directed by Fran Kranz. Um, it was... I know Eli and Ben talked about it a lot in the year-end episode that we did for 2021, and I'm glad I was able to finally see it. And it was quite fitting to watch it on my flight coming into the U.S. as it talks about two families getting together years after a school shooting, and one of the sets of parents is of one of the victims, and one of the sets of parents is of the perpetrator of the mass shooting. It is a really heavy film. I found myself crying through so much of this movie. Like, the guy next to me on the flight was asking me if I was okay. Um, And I was just like, no, it's just the film. But I think it is a really important movie for everyone to watch, especially voting Americans, as I think it really clearly shows the effect that mass shootings have on families and just people in general. I'm not going to say too much more. I I think that the decision to make the film really pared back stylistically and let the actors work and the script speak for themselves was such a powerful and great choice. And I think all the performances, all four of the lead performances are really stunning, um, especially... Martha Plimpton, who really deserved all the awards that season. Yeah, definitely check this out if you have the chance. Entirely agreed about Martha Plimpton. She is so, so good in that movie. Yeah, that was a movie that really, like, stuck with me my Mm. entire time that I was in the States this summer. Mm. Uh, Just really, like... Over overshadowed everything. Well, not overshadowed everything, but I think just having that pain present in your mind, it just, like, after having, like, lived in the States for a long time and, like, really enjoyed living in the States, and I think returning now, um, having a home elsewhere, yeah, just got me a lot to, like, th- thinking about my relationship with, with the country and, yeah, my issues with... America. Absolutely. Wilson, when you arrived and we first saw each other just to hang out, coincidentally at Lincoln Center, like a few feet from the cinema there, our first conversation involved sort of a temp check about where the United States is now versus Mm. where it was when you last were there. Yeah. And it's not a pretty picture. And it was a bit of a bummer of a conversation. And I felt bad (laughs) because I was like, yeah, it's kind of terrible the second you arrived. Right. But one of the wonderful things about this movie is that because it is so detailed and focused on the effects on these four specific people, it finds a way of being believably pragmatically optimistic about the possibility of the continuation of life and livelihood after Mm. terrible things happen. And I'll also drop that a book I'm reading right now, which I'm enjoying a lot, is Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson, and on the climate side has a similar effect. So I'm finding that I'm appreciating a lot more those types of movies and books and works of art in general that have a detailed pragmatic approach to 
what does it look like to be alive right now and in the near future? And how do things continue? Mm. It's been a while since I saw this film and like thinking about America as it as I thought of it before I ever stepped foot as a student in the States. And the America I think about now is like very, very, that's like a 10 year gap. Yeah. Yeah. America has changed a lot in those 10 years and my perspective mm-hmm. on America has also changed like a shit ton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm like wondering like if it's like the country has changed or my view of the country has just I mean, changed. I, I guess definitely both, I would say. Yeah. Definitely. Like, I mean, I mean, both. as international students, like when you, before you step foot in America, you don't really understand, not just as, as international, but also just like as a young person who doesn't understand, mm-hmm. right? And then when you step mm-hmm. foot and then you learn what's going on in America and then you see it by being on the land itself, then you get to understand the problems yeah. that it has and the and that list is extremely long. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, I would, wouldn't trade for the world because like changed so much of how I thought about so many things. Mm-hmm. Like being I in agree. a place full of problems. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and like that yeah. teaches you some stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the film does a really good job of like giving you time to understand all the perspectives coming up your own conclusions really Mm. and like really focusing on character and the situation at hand and it's like ridiculously emotional to watch (laughs) yeah yeah it really is yeah Yeah. thank you guys for yeah putting it so high on your 2021 list yeah Mm. yeah with that let's move on to another (laughs) dark morbid picture um, <laughs> something that's pessimistic about what the future looks like so eli you saw pulse <sighs> i sure did and so did i um uh, with my kurosawa deep dive as well welcome to the digital age <laughs> welcome to the new age and you've seen this too right wilson you've seen pulse yeah i've seen this yeah. that was this was actually my first kurosawa oh okay oh no it wasn't no it wasn't sorry to the ends of the <laughs> earth or the other world. Go, also going on, lying on, lying on yeah. mic again. Like, it's nothing's changed. Let's read the clip and then let's talk about Pulse, which I actually have so little memory of. <laughs> so we're playing my clip and then your clip. Oh shit! I gotta find my clip. Oh fuck! <laughs> I did not plan this. <laughs> who who watched it first? I think I did. You did. Yes. Okay. Then we'll queue up mine. Boom! 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 Today is June thirteenth, and feeling inspired by Ben watching and loving Cure, I decided to watch my first Kiyoshi Kurosawa movie. That was Pulse, or Cairo. Man, oh man, what a depressing movie. I'm reading a book called The Art of Cruelty by Maggie Nelson, and in it she cites the poet Fanny Howe who said, quote, the point of art is to show people that life is worth living by showing that it isn't, end quote. Which is an interesting quotation that I've been trying to wrap my head around all week. I think it kind of applies to Pulse, but also I don't think this movie thinks life is worth living. It's, I'm completely compelled by it and terrified by it. It really manages to stay deeply unnerving and upsetting throughout the runtime. And there's a deep bleakness inside this movie. It's probably the most compelling vision of a ghost that I've seen. I don't mean just visually, though also that, but also what ghosts would do to humans, the despair that they would create. Uh, I mean, I'm both a little unnerved to be in the dark right now because I'm watching this at night, and I'm also feeling, like, deflated. Man, bleak movie, very compelling. I would watch other Kurosawa. I don't know if I want to watch this one again, but 
I, I'm going to be thinking about this all week. I just know it. And I'm looking forward to talking with Ben about Kurosawa because what a fascinating director who has a supreme control on tone, really scary sound. I was sitting with my head near the rear speakers and when ghosts whisper, help me, right next to the microphone. Uh, yeah, uh, gosh, I just like startled so bad. I gasped at multiple points. There aren't really strong jump scares, and that's not the point. I'm, I'm saying it's a good thing that the type of scare that Kurosawa uses more often, which is so fascinating and effective, is things will be normal, and then all of a sudden it'll just like creepily turn into something that's terrifying. We're compelled and drawn to understand things that we don't. It's a sort of curiosity killed the cat, but it's this terrifying idea that what if we can't not go near the thing that saps us of all of our energy in life and causes us to have that deep level of despair? That's a really smart thing to map onto the internet. It makes for a really compelling and upsetting and deeply sad movie. I'd like to watch something a little bit lighter next, so maybe Crimes of the Future isn't that, but I know that's in my near future, so ugh. All right, I'm gonna try to sleep probably unsuccessfully. Wait, this man watched Crimes of the Future to pick himself up? <laughs> <laughs> After Pulse? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> what was I talking about? <laughs> yeah, I hope you didn't have nightmares after recording that, Eli. I think I might have, but I would absolutely watch Pulse again. What a fantastic movie. I do want to watch it again. I love what you said about the like him not having jump scares, because what I think Kurosawa does so well is building this tone or atmosphere yeah. of horror and of like fear that total dread is just like clings on to you as an audience member mm. like the whole runtime or even like grows throughout the runtime so instead of like like how i guess classic horror or just horror as we we know today has like beats of like high panic or where we have like um jump scare beats and then you like have a little lull like everything is working in tandem to to get you to feel scared the entire time it's more of like a dread and like it's like a horror of like living <laughs> but it's like not horror as in like scares it's just it's just the horror that's in your body. Mm. It's a terror. It's something that we can't describe or know fully. Yeah, it's a terror. Yeah, terror is a good word for it. Wait, should we run my clip? Yeah. <laughs> it is the 16th of July. I saw Kurosawa's Pulse. That's Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Pulse. After watching Cure, which I really liked. Pulse was much, is a much slower fan, much more moody and creepy, I guess. But I think as good as it is, and it does create and sustain a very specific alienating tone, it was starting to lose me because it was so slow and enigmatic. But definitely still worth checking out for what he's trying to do in terms of a story that's about connecting in the age of the internet, kind of, and using kind of like this old school technical stuff in terms of uh, connectivity and like chat messaging and all that kind of stuff. Kind of a really strange movie. I mean, Kurosawa was a pretty strange director, and I think pretty idiosyncratic, and I think it's definitely worth seeking out because of that. That's how I said. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, like <laughs> my memory of the film now is like so dim, but there are definitely images that stick with you. Like the idea of totally the the kind of shadows that you leave behind when people just like mm. disappear is like ridiculous. Which to me feels like a pretty clear reference to the atomic shadow right. left behind right. after the explosion of nuclear bombs in Japan by the mm-hmm. United States in World War II. I mean, if you think about, like, Cure, like, he's not a filmmaker, like, who's trying to, like, shove messaging. He's trying to, like, create, uh, like, he's trying to explore themes and then, like, you kind of just take what you want yeah. from him. And I think that's, like, some of the best filmmakers approach themes that way where, like, they're not trying to tell you something. They're just like, let me create this world. And Kurosawa is one of the best at creating weird cinematic worlds, like Cure as well, mm. like, creating that kind of, the murder in Cure is, like, also, like, hard to understand as a human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Paul's definitely, like, makes you think about it. But it's like, I don't even know what is going on. Especially, I think, at the end when they're, like, in the warehouse or something. I can't yeah. remember. Like, like, what is going on? I have oh. no idea. See, some people don't like that the movie explains things as it goes on. But to me, the ending and the changes in the ghost's behavior undermine any understanding that the human characters come to earlier in the movie. It mm. explains itself, which lowers the tension a little bit. And then it unexplains itself and it mm. just gets freakier. I really adore that ending. And again, the imagery and sounds of that ending are so unnerving. Mm-hmm. You know what's like kind of like a random thing? Like I've been watching Neon Genesis Evangelion, which mm-hmm. is this like classic anime that everyone says you should watch. I think it has very similar tone. Like, I mean, obviously like Ooh, interesting. Evangelion has like a lot of like like comedy and like it caters to like a young male audience in a lot of ways but uh like there are definitely Mm. moments in it where it's about like dread because it's also kind of sort of post-apocalyptic and Mm. i mean it's in that way it feels like it's a very japanese theme you know what i mean and i think that also ties into like Ah. the atomic bomb yeah and like even gallon has these like like empty street scenes even though the tokyo it has is, is not empty but like it's always about like hiding from doom Mm. Right. Um, so, like, seeing some weird resonances here. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense, right? Like, Ano and Kurosawa are like in their sixties. They mm. were prob they like probably were born or were young around the time that the atomic bombs dropped. They no, have been born after. They they would have been yeah. g- coming up in the post war like boomer generation. Oh yes, yeah. yes. Like our parents. Shout out to our parents. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on. Let's get the next one. Okay. Ben, you watched Jurassic World Dominion. Oh. <laughs> Jurassic no. World Dominion's Rise of Gru. Yeah, that's the one that Eli wants to hear. <laughs> yeah. about. Run the clip. <laughs> we are going to run the run clip. It. Not, I'm not going to run the clip. For run it. I don't even remember what I said. Okay, I just don't plug it in. We can... Plug it in, plug okay. it in, and then... Editor, override Ben. <laughs> but whatever. I'm not going to run it right now. It doesn't matter. It's so irrelevant. Then I saw a huge stinker, which is Jurassic World Dominion, which I didn't really want to see, but my parents had free tickets, so I just went with them. I did not see Fallen Kingdom, but this is just terrible. I don't want to waste so much time talking about Jurassic World Dominion, but the main thing everyone's going to see is, you go to Jurassic Park, kind of franchise movie, what do you want to see? You want to see dinosaurs, but here the main conflict is about freaking bugs and no one cares about the bugs people care about the dinosaurs and it feels like the plot and the stakes are so separate from the thing that people go to a jurassic world slash park movie about which is dinosaurs and the horror of dinosaurs and the wonder of dinosaurs so you are having this plot about locusts that no one cares about and from what i could tell the second movie in this new trilogy ends with dinosaurs kind of roaming the earth and humans having to live with dinosaurs 
you know, roaming around Central Park like pigeons. There is so much more interesting stuff there where you talk about dinosaurs juxtaposed with daily life that would have been so much more interesting. But instead, most of this film is set in this valley, which I guess is like the Isla Nublar or something, and all the dinos are there. And then that takes them away from the real world. And so we ignore everything about how dinosaurs are living side by side with human beings. So what's the point of this? doesn't make sense. And the fan service is terrible and the plot is so packed with conveniences so that we can get from point A to point B. It's very uninteresting. It's trying to be the wrong kind of action movie, I feel. It's like trying to be like a Bond movie at some points, which I find is very strange. Yeah, I, I think the Jurassic Park movies are about horror and about wonder. And I think this thing just misses the mark and it's trying to be kind of a generic action blockbuster, which it shouldn't be because that just makes it generic. Like you could have so much more fun of this. But of course, once again, Colin Trevorrow is dropping the ball on this. And I, sometimes I wonder why some people get jobs in Hollywood and can continue to make so much money making just absolute dog shit. But you know, them's the breaks, right? I watched this because it got a free ticket. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Uh, so that's why I watched it. Uh, Did you watch it with someone or watched you watched parents. it by yourself? Okay. Shout out to our parents. Shout, Shout out, out to, to my parents. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, this movie is bad. It is so nakedly a cash grab. And it's funny because there was very recently an article from Colin Trevorrow, revered director, who said that Jurassic Park should have been one movie. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Yeah, he said that. You're kidding me. And he yeah. made two of the Jurassic Worlds. <laughs> what? Damn. Yeah, so that happened. Jurassic uh, Park 2's really good. No, no, no. It's not 2's really good. Jurassic Park 3 is really good. I don't, I don't think I've seen think. 2 or 3. I've only probably only seen 1 like when I was really young. Yeah, But anyway, this movie is, is so nakedly a franchise cash grab and the way that it uses the old stars from the original Jurassic Park and then just jams everything in that is so annoying to watch that it is so devoid of artistic intent <laughs> mm, we love things that are devoid of artistic intent uh, i remember i think i think i know what i probably talked about in the clip which you guys have not heard which is why the fuck is a movie about dinos about bugs <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> stop this man from making more movies <laughs> That's it. <laughs> oh, shout out to Colin Trevorrow. Trevorrow and Trevorrow and Trevorrow. So goodbye, Jurassic World Dominion. And uh, tell us more about <laughs> Goodbye Dragon. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask about this too, because I've for a while now been considering dipping my toes further into Simon Leong's filmography. <sighs> and if you enjoyed some Epichapong, I feel like you will you will fall in love with some Sai. Beautiful. Sai's a difficult director, but uh, let's run the clip and let's talk okay. about Goodbye Dragon Inn. <laughs> I forgot what I said. Here we go. It is July 19th, and I just got out of a theatrical screening of Tsai Ming Liang's Goodbye Dragon Inn. This was actually the first Tsai Ming Liang film that I ever watched. So it was my introduction to him. And after seeing many of his other films, I'm returning to this as it is meant to be seen in a theater. And oh, what a fucking picture. I love the way that this film looks on the big screen. I love the interactions that it shows. I think no one conveys loneliness like Tsai does. The rain beating down outside of the theater at the end, it's, uh, so many images are sticking with me. And 
it's just vibes. He's operating not on dialogue so much of the time and just feelings and filling his long takes with so much emotion with minimal or controlled action. Still a master of staging and framing. I really want to cover Sai on the pod and hope we get to soon. Oh, I didn't know I, I put that at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Describing Sai Ming Leung as just vibes is really... <laughs> feels a bit like false advertisement. <laughs> Not wrong, technically. Here's <laughs> those vibes. For those who are unfamiliar, Goodbye Dragon Inn is a film that Sai Ming Leung made about the last screening of a picture house that has showed Dragon Inn, King Hu's classic martial arts film. Um, and it's at it's sort of chronicling the goings on at this last screening um, in this big picture house. So it tracks a few characters. Kiyonobu Mitamura plays a man who goes into the theater. Searching for a little cruising, maybe, which is also a, a, a Thai staple. Yeah. This queer loneliness and queer longing and desire and the inability to make a connection, mm. but also beautifully showing lightly, like without like a- any characters declaring anything, but like beautifully and quietly showing the end of an era of this movie mm. theater. Yeah, I'm so glad I was able to see it in a theater as it was meant to be seen, like I said. And I know Sai is doing a tour right now of a few U.S. cities, and I feel like if you're unfamiliar with his work, you should just go to the theater and and catch one or two, because I feel like those are the spaces where you where watching slow cinema will be the most beneficial Hmm. where you don't have any other distractions and you're able to really immerse yourself something like memoria which i would have killed to see in a theater um i wasn't able to see in a theater so this is it's something like that where you would you want to be as present as you can be great film beautifully said how do you sell sai ming leung to somebody like that's what i always think (laughs) about like because i i'm not a sci fan and i don't know about other (laughs) my first sci film was stray dogs and i was like the fuck that's a sci film that I haven't tackled yet. I saw it on the big screen as well because it was like the film festival. I was like, oh, Sai Ming Liang, a person I've never heard about, mm-hmm. art house guy. And I was like, all right, mm-hmm. I'm going to watch it. It's going to be great. And I was like, I do not know what the fuck I just saw. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I really struggle with like slow cinema in general. So I want to hear about Eli's thoughts on Memoria. Yeah. <laughs> because I really struggle with Memoria. So that's definitely slow cinema as well. I love Memoria. Yeah, I wanted you to talk about Memoria because I know it was one of your highlights of the summer. And it is also a film that I loved. It is my first We Are South Cool film. Same here. Not mine. <laughs> All right, let's run the clip. Say more. Roll the clip. <laughs> yeah, let's hear the clip. Clippy, clippy. Today is Friday, June 17th, 2022, and I just watched Memoria. It's playing at Film at Lincoln Center, which is my favorite place to see movies in the whole world. And I watched it in the Francesca Beale Theater. Now I'm sitting on top of the Francesca Beale Theater on a nice patch of grass. I love going to the movies alone and not telling anyone that I'm going, disappearing for a little bit. This is the first time I've been able to do that since before the start of the pandemic, so about three years. And what a perfect movie to do that with. I had a free afternoon. I slipped into Memoria and it was really moving. That's a really special movie. I have my ideas about what it might be about, 
intellectually, but the things that I want to focus on for the sake of this little audio diary are the deep respect I have for the sound team and that I feel different, I suppose, right now, where I feel like I'm very dialed into what's around me, what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing. And it's very special when a movie does that to you when it changes something that you can't quite describe. So I'll close out by saying that as the movie ended, I sat and just watched the credits and listened to this soundtrack of rainfall, and I noticed as I turned my head around, the sound of the rain changed. Then I looked at a speaker, and I had a thought. I stood out of my seat, and I walked towards it. I heard one sound of rain, a kind of trickle. Then I walked to a different speaker further down the wall, and it was more of a steady pour. I walked to the back of the theater. There were some distant booms of thunder in one speaker, then to another speaker, and I heard an entirely different rain sound. So no matter where you're sitting in that theater, you have a slightly different experience of the movie. You hear different things, but it's the same movie, and you're in the same theater with the same people. That feels like a synecdoche of memoria to me. Ooh. <laughs> I'm imagining Eli walking around the theater, <laughs> putting his face to speakers. <laughs> that was one blissed out boy. That movie is so soothing, <sighs> so peaceful. It, it makes is. you sleep. <laughs> Memoria is a museum. Memoria is theater. Memoria is a video game. And Memoria is a website. These are my hot takes. <laughs> Wait, it's a video game? What do you mean by a video game and website? <laughs> it is an open world video game where you wander around and meet people and have long conversations Ooh. about fish. Mm-hmm. Yes. Just vibes, man. It's great. Yeah, movie. it's so just vibes. <laughs> yeah. Incredible movie. Memoria is a movie like I, I like I wrote this like freaking long ass letterbox review about how I didn't understand it. But that was a great review. Yeah. Like a really great piece of writing. I think like just trying to figure out how to access cinema like this is like quite difficult. Right. Because it's on such a visceral level and in, in like not in like a genre way, right? It's like a visceral level in, in like a you just let yourself slip mm. into it. Yeah. But there's no really like intellectualizing like mm. what's happening, but it's just how invested you are in the moment and slow cinema that is also long cinema mm. like achieves that so beautifully because it's just trance like right in the way that you get sucked in and and then you come out of it and you're just like i don't know why i felt this but i was so invested mm. it alters your biorhythms mm-hmm. mm-hmm. i kind of like i wish i had these kinds of experiences when i watched some films and i'm like when people describe these things to me, I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, and that's the thing that bothers me out because I'm just like, fuck. Huh. Like, what am I like watching? Like, how am I watching it almost wrong, I guess? But I don't think I am. Mm. So like, then it's kind of like... I don't think you are. So like, like it so. really makes me think about like, like how we see these things mm. yeah. and like how we all have different experiences like watching these things and like like it's like what you say it's a museum right it's like you put a sculpture on a table and then some people will walk past the sculpture because it looks like decoration some people are like oh wait this is art yeah once again random resonance but because <laughs> the most recent film i saw when we we're recording this is free solo which is like really about this guy who's a climber but mm-hmm. it's also really about his psychology and like how he thinks mm-hmm. differently from other people and like it really made me think about like how we respond to the world in very different ways like everyone just like yeah. because of either upbringing or whatever you just respond to the world differently and like the stimuli mm-hmm. that you have is different so like when you watch the same film like 
you might not have the same experience really because of how you receive information. I think that's something that's quite hard to describe when you read a review or like for somebody to really like, I think sometimes properly review something like this, they have to give you more of themselves to tell you why the experience is that way. Mm. And when they don't, then you're just like, what? I don't get it. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, especially when your experience is different from their experience. I think that idea is coded into at least the very ending of Memoria with mm. the different rain sounds in the speakers. Right. It asks you to come in as yourself and maybe unify some kind of experience, but also acknowledges that it's going to be a little bit different for everyone. Mm. Cool. <laughs> nice. Nice. Benjamin. Oh, fuck. Is it me again? The man, man up time. Let's have a manly conversation <laughs> without heat, 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 heat. Bring the heat. And then I also rewatched Heat, which I watched a while ago and didn't really think that much about it. But Heat is just a very, very good action movie. And there's nothing much to really say about it. I think, like, is it a perfect action movie? It's hard to say. I think it is interesting how you have this scene between Al Pacino and Robert De, Niro, Robert De Niro, like having coffee, the kind of cop and robber having this sit down, which is really interesting, which is, you know, part of man's MO where like he has these action thriller movies where he also has very long dialogue scenes, which kind of makes him stand apart from the typical action movie stuff where it's, you know, action beat over action beat. Heat is good. I think the only reason I don't think it's a perfect action movie like most people do is that it kind of feels like it could have been longer. And I think it kind of whiffs on the things that it doesn't spend enough time on. And I think it feels like it could have been a TV series, which it was supposed to be. It's supposed to be a TV series uh, in its original incarnation as LA Takedown. So it's a bit odd. Uh, watching Heat and having these thoughts and also feeling like we could have spent more time on this kind of cat and mouse chase between Al Pacino and Robert De Niro's character. Here, it feels like just one moment. It feels like we need we needed to spend more time developing the relationship between the two of them, but still a, a good time. And you can see the influences in something like The Dark Knight and plenty of other action movies. I agree. About like the... I haven't seen it. It should be longer. <laughs> is that what you mean? Yeah. It, Which is like a ridiculous thing to say about a three-hour movie. Yeah. <laughs> a three-hour action movie. It's it's good. I think it's it's very... Pacino is too much. Yeah. That's my hot take. Like I think he's too much when you think about his character in isolation, but I think it works for the movie. Like he's, he's yeah. bonkers. He yeah, acts he like is he is bonkers. on cocaine. <laughs> he probably is. He just randomly yells. Yeah. What's the line about the ass? Yeah. <laughs> That's the perfect best, example. Best line of movie. Yeah, it, like it's like kind of weird. Like it's maybe one of the most like well crafted action movies, but it still feels underbaked, like undercooked. Like it mm. needed more time to like be perfect because I don't think it's perfect. I agree. The action scenes are great, but like I think to really like give you time to understand all the things, the characterization, all that, like feels still a little bit like tacked on to give you investment. Mm. So it like, it works, but you can feel like it's not enough. At least my, in my opinion, anyway. I agree. There are, yeah. there are definite moments of greatness and not just in the action scenes, but like that cafe conversation yeah. is, is just a delight to watch. Yeah. Mm. But I agree. There's, there's some, something in the realm of characterization that's missing or not fully fleshed out. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also in Heat, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino are in love. That's it. <laughs> yeah. It... <laughs> well, I um, guess we'll keep rolling on. Oh. What is this film? What is this film, Wilson, that you watch on the what same is this day film? as Rousset? Keep rolling. Keep rolling. 
this is sort of me also doing some um, deep cut prep, oh. but this is a 2020 documentary directed by uh, Man Lim Chung, who is a who is predominantly a production designer for a bunch of An Hui's films and Pang Ho Chung's films, and this is a documentary about the life and the work of An Hui who is one of my directors I hold near and dear to my heart after writing a paper on her for my Global Film Auteurs class. And here's my clip on Keep Rolling. Hey, it is August 22nd, 2022. This is Wilson and another edition of my Summer Movie Roundup. I just saw the documentary by Man Lim Chung called Keep Rolling, which was released in 2020. And this is a director-based documentary on the life and the work of Anne Hui. And Anne Hui is a director that I've been tracking for quite a few years, and I fell in love with while researching her for a film paper that I had to do in college. I wrote a paper on why Anne Hui should be regarded as a global film auteur in the world cinema canon. Boy, what if this documentary existed when I was writing this paper? Because it is such an expansive documentary that not only talks about her career, but also her personal life and the way that she views the world and the way that she views her work. It is a documentary that has made me really reassess the way that I see her movies because she is an incredible workhorse on set. But what struck me the most is how she was reacting to her film's post-release and the way that she's able to be humble and to be able to admit that a film of hers was a flop or she made mistakes making one of her films. And Man Lim Chung, who was the director of this film, was able to get such great access to her because he is one of her frequent collaborators. He was the production designer on Anne Hoy's recent film, Our Time Will Come, and also um, some of Fruit Chan's movies. There's like a working intimacy that he's able to get with her, and I think that allows him access and insight into what she's thinking at a, a lot of, of points. And there's a lot of behind-the-scenes footage from a few of her recent flicks, as well as interviews with her sister, other friends, collaborators. This should be heralded as one of the best documentaries about a film director because it paints her as a real, true person, as well as an artist. But I think it's the, the real person behind it that really struck me, and I really appreciated it. Please, please go check this out if you are a fan of Anne Hoy's work or are interested in Anne Hoy's work, because I do think this also acts as a good primer to people who want to get into her films. This is probably my favorite behind-the-scenes director documentaries that I've ever seen. I think this gives such a beautiful, holistic view of Hoya's director and made me respect her and her work so much more. I just really enjoy and admire the working style and the, the work ethic of mm. these Hong Kong directors coming up in the 90s who, or the 80s and the 90s and the new wave and how they dealt with the industry and they dealt with audiences. And like Hoi in this movie, a lot of times is able to admit that 
she's made flops or she's made films that doesn't work and she will just try in the next one to mm. make a good film but she is willing to admit that that she she's missed um and i feel like a lot of directors um are so closed off to to openly admitting that mm-hmm. and talking about what they could have done better and i think that I was able to like learn a lot from from watching her in this documentary and it was just very enlightening and when we do get to Anhui this will be mandatory extra reading for us talking about her but yeah this is a film that a lot of people should watch if they're fans of her work and if you are not a fan of her work I think this is also a great intro to discovering the cinema of Anhui I love what you said about the filmography. There's so much preciousness, especially on the movie side, about the idea of a body of work. Mm-hmm. I know Nerd Writer, who's a video essayist <laughs> who I adore, just had a, an interesting video on Quentin Tarantino's pursuit of a perfect 10 filmography mm-hmm. <laughs> of 10 movies that are all great, which, uh, you know, I have opinions on. Will not happen. Anyway. I mean, he's already failed, but okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I agree. But that's not the way that a life is lived. So why Mm. should we be so perfectionist about a body of work instead of recognizing that, as with anything, developing a craft is a process Mm -hmm. and it takes mistakes. We shouldn't really be trying to hide those mistakes. Why why bother with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I think maybe it's like an agent thing, but like they want to craft a myth of a filmmaker. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of that comes from auteur as well. Like, like when you think about auteurs yes. and then, like you're thinking about their body of work and like how it shapes them and like shapes them as a person, but like it also ignores the fact that aside from being filmmakers, they're also just people. Yeah. Right. And like, like people suck sometimes. <laughs> people make crap sometimes. I mean, even Colin Trevorrow can say that his film shouldn't exist. <laughs> so I mean, I mean, good for Colin, you know. <laughs> yeah, pat on the back, Colin. Yeah, um, like being able to admit that you made a miss is like quite rare, I think, with film filmmakers. Or like admitting that even if your film is like things that it's doing wrong, you know, like some films have like shoddy politics, and then like some filmmakers, I think, double down. Like sometimes it's like maybe. Don't double down. I don't know. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Maybe change. And I feel like by being able to admit your mistakes makes me respect you so much more. Agreed. Because you realize or you openly realize you have room to grow. Mm -hmm. Okay. Eli, I want to hear about your experience watching um, Tom Hane's Court, which is also a director I have not touched. Yes. I mean, I'm glad you watched Court. Uh, I haven't watched Court in eight years. I saw it in 2014. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I still think of it as a great movie. <laughs> All right, let's roll a clip. Let's roll a clip, yeah. <laughs> Remind me what this movie is about. <laughs> Today is August 11th, 2022. This is Eli. I just watched Court from 2014 by Chaitanya Tamhane. And this was a movie that has been on my radar for a while, particularly because I know Ben enjoys that movie and the work of Tom Hane. He mentioned The Disciple in our 2021 in review episode. Already feels like a long time ago. Court is a little perplexing, but very subtle and interesting. And going from the trailers, I was really expecting a movie more about the folk singer at the center of the movie who has been accused of abetting a suicide of a 
sewage worker who dies in the sewer because of a lyric that the folk singer possibly sang encouraging sewage workers to die in the sewer as an act of social protest. So it's a lot about art and social movements, or at least that's kind of what I was expecting, but it's really more about the court system and these two lawyers who we learn their backgrounds and what might be feeding their political views, hypocrisies, and ultimately how all of that gets ensnared in a months-long process that keeps the folk singer who's elderly stuck in this trial for a very long time as his health is ailing. It ends in a very odd way that I'm not sure how to read, but I'm interested by, and I trust that there's something there, particularly with how the very final beat contrasts with the opening moments of the movie. Honestly, this is something that I want to ask Ben more about, so hopefully I'll have the chance to do so very soon. That chance is a look at us now. Ben. I need to rewatch this movie. <laughs> Maybe I don't like it anymore, but I will say that when I watched it in 2014... Like, I was really into Altman, and I think this has very strong Altman mm. genes. Ah. This is, like, the kind of slow cinema that I vibe with. Mm. And I think this is a film that Wilson will like, mm. because it has a Wiseman-like feel. Totally. Even though it's not a documentary. Totally. When I was watching it, 2014, this is early in my, like, journey into film. It, like, blew my mind, the st- narrative structure of this. Mm. Like, and the fact that I can remember it tells you how much it stuck with me. Yeah. And I remember yeah. that final shot. And I don't usually remember so many films, but, like, it was a movie that, like, stuck in my mind. And, like, briefly, it's kind of like, it starts with the folk singer, as far as I can remember. And then, tell me if I'm wrong, Eli. But then it goes into, like, one lawyer, and then, like, it goes into, like, another lawyer. It just, like, enters a, a different door, and then goes to a different character. And then that's the character's center now. And then it just goes in a different door and then, okay, here's this next character in the center of the third part, something like that. Like, the way that it just, like, drops a character to follow another character was just, like, so strange and effective in putting you through what the like, how the court system was working about this specific thing. It's a really good way to put it. And I just found that really fascinating. Yeah, it's a very fascinating way of structure a film and, like, for it to work. And I remember the final shot is just one lawyer just, like, with his kids. It's the judge. Right. The okay, child. Yes. Who you haven't really gotten to know at all before that point. It's odd. <laughs> it is. Yeah, I want to rewatch it if I find the time, but like I definitely think it will still be interesting <laughs> to me. I think I would get more from it on a rewatch for sure. Yeah. It is strangely like Altman plus Wiseman plus Farhadi. Mm. Yeah. It's just crazy because this is this guy's like first film. Yeah. And it feels like a film that somebody made without watching too many other films which is like the best yeah you know what I mean it's like you throw away every, like he, you, know, you don't even throw you don't even have like things that everyone has you just do it your own way totally and then you're like oh I'm gonna make a movie because this is just how it looks like in my head and then it's like this thing I like that so it feels like it doesn't have uh, good comparisons honestly maybe that's my thoughts on court eight years later <laughs> after <laughs> constantly pushing it to people without having rewatched it but I will try and find time for it at some point <laughs> it's on Netflix court <laughs> Court and it sequels Pint and Gallon. <laughs> Cut that. <laughs> what? <laughs> speaking of uh, speaking of doing things your own way, uh, we can <laughs> taking things into your own hands. Let's talk about poetry. <laughs> Have you seen poetry? 
Yeah, I love poetry. Oh, That's shit. why I picked it. How do you find this clip? Oh, fuck. Oh, my God. Where Lee Chang Dong, go? my man. I have mixed feelings. Yeah, it's always iffy territory with Lee. Next, I have poetry by Lee Chang Dong, which is, I think, only the second uh, Lee Chang Dong movie I've seen. The other one being Burning, which I was a bit cold on. Poetry, however, is incredible. I think a masterpiece in terms of like what it is doing. As a premise, it is quite hard to pin down. Like a woman who has to deal with uh, this heinous crime that her grandson does, as well as the fact that she's trying to write a poem, which feels like two quite random things being shoved together. But I think Lee Chang Dong actually like finds something really beautiful with it, especially with that ending, which is equal parts serene as well as horrifying in a certain way. And the kind of restraint and just gentleness that he kind of approaches the kind of sordid subject matter is a sight to behold. And I mean, it's the kind of film that like parts of it, especially near the start when it's developing its elements, feels a little bit almost boring. And I was like, wasn't sure where it was going. But then it's the kind of film that as long as you give it enough time, it is able to generate a lot of emotive, emotional power by the end of it. And the main character, this grandmother, is becomes this such an interesting character to watch that you rarely, rarely see. Like you compare this with Bong Joon-ho's mother, which also, you know, has maternal character trying to protect their son or in this, in poetry's case, a grandson. And that one kind of embraces something much more violent and animalistic, whereas poetry really creates this internal struggle that you can feel with her, even though it's not necessarily explicit. It gives you enough so that you can enter the character's mind and like kind of experience what she's experiencing the same way that she is, including her kind of search for inspiration for the poetry that also dovetails with how she's meant to engage and like respond to the thing that's happening within her family life, which crazy, weird, crazy movie. But as kind of stuff like this is what I watch these kinds of art house movies for, like to find this kind of perfect middle spot of something that is doing something very different, but also telling a very engaging story. <laughs> I really love Lee Chang Dong as a filmmaker, and I think he he walks the line very well, like compared to like other filmmakers, which I feel like cross the line a lot, mm. like Von Trier or like yeah. because I feel like you they they still like Lee Chang Dong and Von Trier sort of operate in similar like wavelengths of like trying to make you feel like shit by like showing you these terrible lives of these people, <laughs> but I think there's a certain like grace to Lee's filmmaking and grace extended to his own characters mm. um, that is really beautiful and I think poetry is just a such a fine example of that at least what I remember of poetry like I was surprised by how quiet it was with, with the title like poetry I was like I did not know this was a film about a woman trying to write a poem and like that s- sounds mm-hmm. So, like, what? <laughs> on paper, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, it's just about a woman trying to write a poem. And of course, there's, like, a lot of other shit going on. But the time that it takes, and, like, for you to, like, understand the situation. And, like, it's almost like the whole film is told to you in, like, hushed whispers. You're just like, oh, this is going on right now. And, like, we gotta do something about it. And then you're like, oh, okay. Also, I'm trying to write a poem. And you're like, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, like, she is kind of like this 
enigmatic character that you're not really sure what's going on in her mind. So you kind of have to fill in your blanks yourself. And I think the film definitely gives you enough to fill in those blanks yourself and then like understand how she arrives at certain decisions in the film. Pretty incredible, honestly. Like, yeah, I I can't believe it took me so long to watch this, but yeah. I'm still always a big fan of the way that he stages and and shoots a scene because he always like manages to do it in, I guess, the shortest amount of of coverage possible and he always does something like in the middle of a long take to he usually like stays on a a frame and then he like something changes in the blocking and then you you have like a fully different frame but without a cut and he just does those switches so so well and so effectively and you're you're still so immersed but you realize the perspective has changed but yeah this is more of a general Li Chengdong comment but mm, yeah. what a masterful director I want to see more stuff mm. from him like he hasn't actually made that many films didn't we watch Oasis Ooh. together Eli did we watch it together or maybe not I have definitely seen it I so Li Chengdong I really admire the willingness to go to risky territory and to do that with as Wilson said grace Burning, I fully think, is overrated. Yeah, same here, actually. And not as interesting as as everyone uh, thought. <laughs> but Oasis is a tough nut to crack because its portrayal of neurodivergence and or physical disability and or mental illness is alternately othering, pitying, empathetic. And whenever an actor who does not live with one of those conditions portrays that i get a little uncomfortable and i don't know i it does some nice things to show inner life but also some of the specific techniques it uses like having the main actress have points when she drops the act of having a physical disability and like dances to show her emotions i i really don't know what i think of that i um Mm. i don't know it's it's complicated and yeah. it's not one thing good or bad, but I would definitely need to watch more of Lee's movies in order to have a firm take. Mm-hmm. I think you'll definitely like poetry. Eli. Yeah, I think so. Okay. For sure. Bye. I'm like, that's a bell. Put ten dollars on it. <laughs> like it'll be your it will definitely be your favorite Lee Chang doll movie. I mean, okay. I'll give it a shot. Thank you. That's not saying much. <laughs> yeah, it's not saying much. <laughs> Yeah, but I I just, I'm confident with poetry. Like, I think with its tone and what it's about, and like what it does with what it's about, I'm confident you will like it. Right on. Yeah. Eli, I want to hear about this very interesting title that you have on your your list, an Obi-Oba. Obi-Oba, The End of Civilization by Piotr Shulkin, who was a Polish sci-fi and I think women's picture director in the, like, latter quarter of the 20th century i'm gonna play the recording and i I cannot wait for you guys to watch this it is a mind-blowing picture okay eli here the date is july 4th 2022 and i'm here with my good friend adam desantis hello and we just watched a polish movie from 1985 called obi oba the End of Civilization by Piotr Shulkin. And it is a post-apocalyptic, post-nuclear war bunker drama? Tour of the Shelter? I, yeah, hard to classify it <laughs> Yeah, in our terms. 
I um, guess sort of speculative sci-fi, hard sci-fi, yeah. but everyone yeah. is a little insane. Yeah, definitely kind of, um, what's that German, the uh, downfall vibes? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of like a bunker film, yeah. the last days, things are crumbling. <laughs> it's kind of a weird comparison to make to it. No, I think that is strangely apt, upsettingly apt. Just the kind of lunacy. The kind of just, like, no one is quite sane anymore. Everything's bleak. Well, extremely bleak. We know there's no future. We're at varying levels of accepting that. Mm. Maybe the most fascinating thematic element is this idea of faith and lying to the masses and how people in power use that or fail to use that. The way that they got everyone into this bunker was by lying to them and saying that an ark was coming to save them from this bunker if they could all get inside. But then once everyone got there, they were like, okay, just kidding. There is no ark. You have to focus on life here. But then no one really believed them. They still wanted to believe in the ark. So they refused to accept that there was no no one coming to help them. The main character is a man named Soft who is a sort of orderly slash detective type who meets various people and interacts with them to do his job or do things like it buy seems onions. like maintaining order mainly. Yeah. And also kind of a, I don't know, he struck me as like a kind of like a pragmatic, like play all sides kind of person just trying to survive and keep things kind of running. He's the most sane character who we meet for a while at least and everyone kind of slaps him and calls him stupid but things crumble pretty quickly over the 85 minutes and to me the most special component of it is the world building yeah it's a lot of really interesting imagery and just and sound and sound design yeah the ending shots of the film, uh, like, are, I don't, are, can we spoil, I don't want to spoil it. No, that's fine. But you have, like, you know, the masses of people clamoring to get outside, running towards the light, which they're running to their death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it looked cool. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think that is in a sort of mad god-ish way, which anyone who's listened to the 2021 year in review will be familiar with. It's bleak, yet fascinating and compelling and beautiful. And there's something about this movie that is fascinated with the people who live in that situation, even though it is pitiful. And there's something strangely humanist about that, I feel. I don't know what you think about that. I'm I'm maybe split on that. I mean, I it it, it was tough for me because I I, I I wasn't sure whether to read it as an allegory, which I guess I mean it's this kind of hard sci-fi. You probably should. Mm, the ending is certainly allegory. Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, weird ending. Very weird. Very different from other speculative fiction that I've been absorbing lately there's not a lot to compare it to really in terms of what it's about but i mean having watched threads and the day after which are both extremely kind of almost documentary like in their depiction of the end of civilization this seems to have taken a more abstract approach yeah combining beauty with the pity particularly pictorial beauty yeah well, I don't know about beauty, but... Oh, I would say beauty. Really? Yeah. Okay. Which is troubling in a sense, 
What was beautiful? I mean, it was certainly awe-inspiring, but... Poetic? Poetic, sure. That kind of beauty. Yeah. (laughs) Lots to chew over, and I suppose something to seek out for anyone who's interested in Eastern European cinema and strange little corners of that. It has a very unique flavor and particularly (laughs) unique acting style (laughs) that runs the range from subtle to over the top. There were a high number of kind of maniacal laughs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Quite a lot of that. (laughs) Eli and Adam out. Love you, Adam. Oh, it's so nice to hear Adam's voice. Yeah. (laughs) My God. It sounds interesting. It's a wacky, wild movie. I think that Pyotr Shulkin is in Deep Cut's future because it's just such a wholly unique vision of, well, the end of civilization. Yo, all his, I'm looking at his posters right now, they all look ridiculous. Yeah, Polish poster design in the 20th century for movies that are both Polish and international is wild. There's a whole interesting history there. How many hats? How many skulls? <laughs> you got a tit out. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I just love how you just <laughs> naked women and skulls. Got a tit out. Like, I don't know. Looking at this stuff like makes me think about um, what's the guy? The guy that made Alien? Ridley Scott. James Cameron. No, no, not made Alien. David Fincher. The guy who made the design of Alien. Oh, H.R. Geiger. Yeah, like it's making me think of H.R. Geiger. Looking at these like kind of like horrific weird mm. things. I would put that more in the realm of the poster than the movie itself. At right, least for this movie. Right. I know that watching more Shulkin movies is in my near future if possible because it's so compelling and strange so strange you know you really have like a curiosity for the i don't know like morbid morbid, uh, morbidly beautiful and like yeah morbidly beautiful (laughs) is a great (laughs) phrase but i'm also deeply skeptical of beauty and the danger of aesthetic pleasure yeah so I'm both fascinated and a little repulsed by it. But I think it's because mm. you are repulsed by it that, that you are so fascinated by it. I think like if you were less repulsed... What does that say about me? No, but it makes sense. Like, it's mean like you think about, like, it operates in that emotional level where it's like, this is disgusting, but I want to look at it. I mean, it fascinates me too. And, like, maybe sometimes, like, when I... It's like when I watch Crimes of the Future oh. and, like, that stuff still repulsed me when I was like, oh, yeah, this is pretty fucking weird but also kind of like hot <laughs> but then i look at the reviews and i'm like why are people saying this is like kind of like normal cronenberg this is like weird like these people and are it's like not normal cronenberg that's the thing and like i feel like it's almost like if you watch enough of this stuff you become desensitized to it but like if you still have that bone in you then you're human mm. like if you're repulsed then i think that is human and like being fascinated by it is also quite human you know what i mean mm. wilson yes how about love massacre <laughs> Or love Asaker. Um, but <laughs> we really all have a sick summer. <laughs> yeah. Sicko summer. Sicko cinema summer. This film has been sitting on my watch list for literally probably like three years. So Patrick Tam, as old people might not know, is a really prolific Hong Kong film director. One of the... Um, pioneers of the Hong Kong New Wave alongside Anne Hui 
He mentored Mwangawai when he was starting out. And this is an early film of his called Love Massacre. It stars Bridget Lin and Chang Kuo Chu, who plays the dad in A Brighter Summer Day. Um, and it's very, very fascinating turn here. And it takes place entirely or almost entirely in California in the States. And basically, uh, it's like a romance film that turns into a, a slasher movie. Mm. And I'm sold. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Wilson. It is August 30th, and I just watched Patrick Tom Gaming's Love Massacre, which was made in 1981 stars Bridget Lynn, and this might be one of the f- my favorite movies that I've seen this summer. It is a slasher film. I don't want to give a lot away because a lot hinges on the twists and the violence, the unexpected violence that happens in this film, but this sense of eeriness, this sense of detachment, and this sense of loneliness Patrick Tam imbues this film with is what in my opinion, is his idea of what it is like to live in America as an immigrant from Hong Kong. The violence that is allowed in this film is harrowing, but also the way that it's presented is so gorgeous. There's so many simple frames, simple color work in the production design. The blown out whites of the frame make everything feel so sterile and so unwelcoming. And I just am so blown away by how visceral this film is and how out there it is. This is my third Patrick Tam film that I've seen. I'm definitely going to go down the rabbit hole and watch through his entire filmography because this was incredible, and I implore everyone to go find this movie and watch it. Thanks. It is probably the most beautiful horror movie I've ever seen. The only available copy of this film is this horrible VHS rip of it where the the whites are blown out and like to the point where you can't really read the English subtitles over because the the English subtitles are white and they just get washed out. Um, (laughs) And if there's any film that I'm begging for restoration from, it is this one because the compositions in this every frame a fucking painting there is so much like compositional beauty but also in its like rigidity you sense sort of a a loss of self that these characters have in this new land of america whoa i think it is a lot about the the loss of self in this like immigrating and being in this new land. I'm not exactly sure what he's trying to say, but this is incredibly effective filmmaking. It's visceral, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous. Yeah, all my picks have been very deep cuts. Uh, And just to top it off, it was my favorite deep cut of the summer, Love Massacre. Wow. It's not, I mean, like, I don't know why, but, like, the, this poster of Bridget Lynn is really enthralling. <laughs> like, I don't know why. Yeah. Something about yeah. Her, the, the look that she has in her face is just, like, it makes me want to watch it. But I kind of want to watch a restoration. Yeah, but yeah. who knows? It may never happen. Like, maybe they don't have it. Maybe they, they don't yeah. have it. They maybe you know? don't. It's very possible. Yeah. Like, it's really sad when, like, pretty recent movies are not properly, like, taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Patrick Tam is a director that I am 
also circling and very interested in his filmography and what he has to say about alienation and young people in Hong Kong uh, in the 80s and 90s. And it would be like interesting to cover him soon. Podcast. Cool. Last one. Last pick. And we have a, a little woony, a little parky. Parky Chani Wooney. Wooney. <laughs> what? Wookie. Yeah, he's a Wookie. <laughs> I was like, wait. Whoops. I got his name wrong. Park Chan Wooney. Wookie is funny. Do you guys want to hear my Wookie impression? Sure. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's good. Ooh. Thank you. Make this man an actor. What the fuck? <laughs> Chewy right here. <laughs> so, yes, I watched Sympathy for Lady Vengeance by Park Chan Wook. That's a roll tape. Roll a clip. It is Saturday, August 13th, 2022. Eli here. I watched Sympathy for Lady Vengeance by Park Chan-wook. I don't know why I keep on watching Park Chan-wook movies because I'm routinely creeped out and unnerved by them and not particularly in a way that makes me think a ton afterwards other than like, wow, that was messed up and then suck <laughs> which they do to be clear I, I don't know there's a certain fun in not knowing how he's gonna freak you out this time sympathy for lady vengeance is not quite as harsh on the viewer as the first in the vengeance trilogy mr vengeance and what i mean by that is that the characters perhaps act more cruelly in this movie. They're a little bit more hapless in Mr. Vengeance. But the world and the sense of cruel culmination and the ways in which the upsetting things mount in Mr. Vengeance is harsher on the viewer than what happens in Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. The peak of the experience for me is a sequence Spoilers, spoilers, spoilers for Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. When the main character shows the parents of the children who Mr. Bake has killed videotapes of their murders in order to convince them that Mr. Bake is the guy and to transfer her hatred of Mr. Bake onto them to motivate them and really manipulate them into killing Mr. Bake. That is when it actually feels the most interesting and thought-provoking as to thinking about the ways in which the different people in the room are acting in the wrong way and what exactly is so cruel about what the main character is doing. Overall, it's probably not something I'm going to watch again, but it does have things about it that are really interesting and on a certain level enjoyable. And, you know, I am still going to watch Decision to Leave because I think his filmmaking is only getting sharper. Handmaiden probably being my favorite of his movies, if not old boy so far. It's just funny that for, for a filmmaker who I don't really love, I keep on kind of going back to his movies and I don't really know <laughs> why <laughs> because they're not really my favorites and they're not what I go to the movies for to experience so much even though I know I've been talking on the pod recently about how I like being freaked out or challenged in this way it's it's a visceral sort of challenge without a ton of thought I think that's how I feel about Park Chan-wook there are exceptions to that 
as happened in that sequence that I named in Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. Final observation, no one can direct a creeped out and traumatized smile to the camera like Park Chan-wook can. That's a pretty memorable thing about his movies in multiple of his movies. So yeah, I'm excited for a decision to leave. That's a little harsh on Park Chan-wook, probably, <laughs> to say that there's no thought behind... I, I don't know. I know that's not exactly what I was saying, but there's stuff there. I don't, I don't know. Where, where do you guys land on Park Chan-wook? I'm always excited about a new park. And, like, I, I don't know how I feel about his old stuff, honestly. Like, it's been a while since I've seen some of that stuff. I mean, he's definitely, like, like edgy, like, mm-hmm. with an, a capital E. Like, he's being edgy and, like, he shows. Yeah. So it doesn't feel subtle. I feel like watching part early in, like, your journey in the cinema is, like, very cliche, but <laughs> it's because it's exciting and, like, it's like when you're interested in morbid stuff and then this is, like, the surface level morbid. That's a good mm-hmm. way to put it. Yeah. yeah. It's not that he doesn't age well, but he doesn't age well when you age as a cinephile. I agree. Like, he, he loses luster. You know what I mean? Because a lot of his appeal is, ooh, look at this. Yeah. It's so horrifying. And there is fun to that. But like it's still good, right? But like Handmaiden is so twisty and, and fun, mm. but it's it's not like one of my top favorite movies. Handmaiden's still really good though. Wilson's making a face. Handmaiden's really good. <laughs> <laughs> like, is it deep? It's not deep. It's really it's not good. Deep. It's just fun. That's what I mean. You know what I mean? That's and like what I, I mean. think if you're searching for I mean. something deep, he's the wrong guy. Like he does twists and turns like no one else these days right mm. like i feel like totally he is like heir to hitchcock in in a way where <laughs> yeah. like even though it's on everything is like on the surface to you i think reacting to those plot machinations and adds to the thrill of of watching a park movie yeah i haven't seen the the vengeances so i can't i can't speak to that film but always excited by new park because does flashy things on camera and Mm -hmm. i love Mm -hmm. flashy things on camera yeah ben you just watched the new one decision to leave i mean not just but i did watch it and so did wilson (laughs) you saw it too yeah i did see it yeah and did see it all right i remember your letterbox review (laughs) calling it an apple ad which is really funny (laughs) which is it is it is very true it is an apple ad (laughs) i will say that to your point eli like i think decision to leave feels like an evolution of park Yes. It's still ah. fun and like somewhat surface level, but I think it feels like an evolution. Like that he become is become boring. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hey, I think it's good, um, but like it's more like um, it's like he's like almost like trying to be less himself and like trying to do something different, which I, I really appreciate. Uh-huh. Yeah, and like it's still visually huh. stunning and like like really well edited. Huh. Yeah. For an older filmmaker to like tackle technology in the way that he does, I find very surprising. It feels like a film from a younger filmmaker. It does. And I think that that's a big compliment, honestly. It does. Yeah. Hmm. It does it does. Cool. Worthy follow up to The Handmaiden. Yeah. It doesn't quite reach the highs Definitely of not. The Handmaiden. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that was our summer. So we weren't on air, but we were, you could tell, we were all doing our own little researches, researchings, um, teasers to to bring you a banger of the next few rounds of directors that we're going to cover on the pod. Also... Did you guys know that this is the 50th episode of Deep Cut? <laughs> this is the 50th? Yeah. Woo! I think. I'm quite sure. Wow. Oh my God. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Episodes. Yeah. This is a milestone, guys. Holy moly. <laughs> Thank you for sitting with us through 50 episodes. If you're listening to this part of this podcast, this episode specifically, we love you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Not everyone else. <laughs> 
one, one of my favorite parts of my routine is getting to have recordings with you guys. Yeah. Like, sure, watching movies is great and prepping and researching is fun and, and editing I do enjoy. But get it, this is the best part of it, is getting to talk yeah. with you guys. Wow, you like all of it, Eli? <laughs> most of it. Yeah, I like most of it. Just editing takes a while, but I still like it. Yeah, um, it's the flow yes, state yes. thing. Yeah, it's been so long mm. since our last recording, actually. It has. So really excited to get back on the horse and like look at some new directors. Yeah, here, here. yeah. And we have a couple of keeping ups before we yeah. we dive back in. We sure do. Some big blockbusters, <laughs> maybe the biggest film in India. <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> well, to close things out. I wanted to drop in the two audio recordings that Wilson and I did together. And one of them includes our episode cover artist, Justina Yam, when we saw Mad God all together. And the other one is Wilson and I watching Lost Highway together. Because again, highlight of the summer for me was getting to see those movies together. Highlight of the summer for me too. I can't wait to hear those clips. I haven't heard them. (laughs) Boom, boom, boom. Or are we both going? (laughs) It is July 7th, 2022. I'm Eli. I'm Wilson. (laughs) Together! (laughs) At last! (laughs) Wilson is on his uh, Wilson Live World Tour 2022 and stopping in New York for July. Mm -hmm. The first of many movies to come this month. Exactly. We saw Lost Highway. By David Lynch. And now we're sitting on top of the Francesca Beale Theater. (laughs) (laughs) So what did you think of the movie, Eli? So it's interesting. I really love The Return, as Wilson and Ben have heard all too much of. And in both Inland Empire and Lost Highway, which I believe are the two movies that directly most recently precede The Return, if I'm not wrong, there are elements of what makes The Return feel so special to me, but I don't feel as emotionally engaged, at least on first viewings for both of them. This is by design that it is so distanced. And I'll admit that I fell asleep in a couple points. Me too. Yeah, okay. (laughs) Unfortunately, I think it was a little bit of the jet lag that I'm experiencing. I'd be willing to visit it again down the road. There are things that I really like, the music, Mm -hmm. the lighting. Yeah, I think the music, the cinematography are also the high points for me. But I felt a bit lost, like, through, through a lot of it. Like, of course, I think David Lynch is coming from a place where he doesn't want you to get everything that he's putting on screen. Yeah. Um, and it's all about your, your feeling, like, how, how you feel while watching this. And definitely I felt uncomfortable a lot of the time, but I think um, my confusion led me to not connect as much, um, like, viscerally. Not even emotionally, but viscerally to, yeah. to what was happening. Because I'm like, yeah, I can see these horrible things are happening, but I'm like, I, I, like, things are not, like, clicking in my mind. And I think that was, like, the block for me, personally. I think that's a good way to put it, because when Lynch works really well, to me, it is a very visceral feeling, particularly of terror and dread. Yeah. Those very in-the-body feelings of not understanding something, it can still be emotionally engaging in that sense, and mm-hmm. I didn't necessarily feel that on yeah. this watch. Yeah, those are quick thoughts on Lost Highway. We caught the 4K restoration that's playing at Lincoln Center. Very pretty. Yes. And we'll catch you soon. Talk soon. The date is July 13th, 2022. Mm -hmm. I'm Eli. I'm Wilson. 
and I'm Justina. Yeah. <laughs> if you guys don't know, Justina makes the covers for Deep Cut, and Justina and I were both really lucky um, to be able to catch Mad God, Phil Tippett's Mad God, which was Eli's favorite film of last year on the big screen with Eli, and we caught it at IFC Center. Eli's talked about this film on, on the 2021 Best of episode, so I'm gonna go first. And Please. <laughs> I wanna say that I, I really love this movie. I think um, I really appreciate, I understand Eli's appreciation for the craft that went into all these creatures and building the whole world of the film. I still like can't wrap my head around maybe at least like 10 things that were happening in the <laughs> film. Like I was like, how, how did this happen? And I think knowing that it took Tippett 30 years to make this, you, you can tell that some sequences were filmed earlier and some sequences used CGI maybe a little mm -hmm. bit and like compositing with like real life elements and stop motion elements. The amount of like gory horror elements really surprised me as well. And I feel like that was balanced out really, really beautifully with this really like calm, score that was definitely like a highlight for me as well yeah i would highly recommend people watch it and and catch it in a theater near you well yeah. said nice i mean we were talking about the body in the film and the body is something that was so easily destroyed and then regenerated and mm -hmm. just like the general dehumanization or like how fleeting like life was in this film and I feel like it was a really interesting commentary on sort of the late capitalist world we live in and also linking like what it means to be born and like what value does your life have. And then there's a really interesting sequence in the middle of the film that made me think about like our reproductive rights and how that sort of intersects with our labor rights as well. And also how like schizophrenic like time was in the film and how it felt like the general arc of the film. Like I felt like the goal was to sort of have the world like explode and implode on itself. And the like, soldier's end, goal? Right? Yeah, the soldier's goal. Yeah. Who yeah. we were following from the beginning. And just like when the bombs stopped ticking, I was so anxious. And I just feel like that was such a good like characterization of time and also like reflective of our current political moment. That's my ramble. <laughs> there is no catharsis that comes from that goal. The bomb doesn't ultimately go off. I was thinking a lot about the structure of this movie this time around. One of the things that occurred to me is that the closest thing to catharsis the movie gets in a climax sense is this abstract sequence that the floating caretaker causes by killing the baby that comes from inside of the soldier. So anything beautiful in this movie comes from brutality. So well put. I agree with that. There's an inherent pull in it because they can't exist without each other, just as the characters, which are so creative, can't exist without the cruelty of having been made and destroyed by Phil Tippett arguably the mad god of the movie. I'm really glad I got to watch it again with both of you. Very fun time. Yeah. Still one of my favorite movies. 
And yeah, I, I'll echo Wilson and say, seek it out if you can. Go see I it. I agree, I agree. And we'll catch you for the next movie. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter and Instagram. Join us to talk about movies and a lot more on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care. And we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Yeah. <laughs> Love you, boys. Love you, too. Glad to be recording again. Back on it. Back on it. Are you guys hearing background stuff on my end? No. Okay, great. You sound great. (laughs) Thank you. So do you. Thank you. Oh, wow.